0: Chapter 21 The role of lead crime investigator is an arduous one. You need the resilience to push on when obstacles prevent you from ascertaining the facts, a certain doggedness to never accept average, and the diplomatic skills to work across numerous people and departments, as well as show the empathy to ensure that the victim achieves the justice they deserve, and their families. After 32 years in the force, varying from his police college days to a 25-year stint serving the public in Scotland, and after a somewhat messy divorce two years ago that had nearly financially ruined him, DCI John McLaughlin had taken the plunge and accepted the lead role in Essex Police Force's Serious Crime Division this last summer. He'd just been settling into the role engaging how to diplomatically deal with a newly appointed police commissioner, a chap by the name of Edward Charles, when the Stock Road murder case landed on his lap. That day after the post-mortem, both Mac and Kahn made their way back to the police headquarters in Chelmsford. Situated on the fourth floor of a five-storey hexagonal concrete block in the middle of Chelmsford city centre, the building was locally described as a monstrosity to architecture. But it was there on the fourth floor that McLaughlin and his team were going about their business of investigating the Stock Road waste plant murder. John Kahn had been on shift since 7am and now 13 hours later He was due for some shut-eye, but before he could do so the team needed to come together one final time for that evening, for the evening debrief. All team members had so far had shared their observations and updates. Every minute piece of detail had been collated and added electronically to the Homes 2 database and also the physical murder book. The book had been created as soon as a body had been discovered at the waste plant. The murder book was an old school process but it always worked alongside the computerised version. Collecting all the details was key. Each time an entry was made, it was signed off with a time and a date stamp and an officer's ID number. Clearly mindful that the first 48 hours would be the most critical time in gaining any useful information during the course of the investigation, the Essex Police Force had a wide range of disposal of services and personnel for McLaughlin to use. So far, over 66 people had already had an impact on the case in the first 12 hours. That number would grow as investigation net expanded. Ranging from the forensic officers, both crime and fire related, to blood spatter technicians and clothing analysis experts, the post-mortem team and a multitude of criminal analysts covering all aspects of CCTV and surveillance, as well as personnel to undertake the all-important door-to-door interviews. This also included calling on the support of the local police officers on the beat involved in the physical searches which were taking place as this moment at the recreation ground and nearby cemetery but the amount of man-hours being used was growing fast. Attired John McLaughlin led the debrief and updated the group initially on the post-mortem result. Male mid-twenties, 5 foot 10 weight between 13 and 15 stone No specific body markings. Victim had possible learning difficulties. No ID of the victim at present. Victim died as a result of having their throat slit. One fatal wound. Note the victim was dead prior to the vehicle being set alight and no evidence points the area so far as to be in the actual murder scene. The team took in all the information and made notes. Assuming the victim had been missing for at least the last 24 hours, the team were therefore li- looking for missing links. Somebody must be missing him. McLaughlin highlighted that a press release would be issued within the hour so that they'd hit the 10.30 evening local news with a Crime Stoppers number. A few of the team initially groaned at this news as they would need to stay extra hours manning the phones. A few smiled however, keen to know that they'd got overtime for the evening. Both reactions reminded McLaughlin that these valued people all had lives outside of the workforce, whereas he had none. During the next 20 minutes, the team talked and they all discovered the following. Nearby CCTV coverage had picked up a vehicle on screen at around 6.28 that morning. The registration was clear on the screen and revealed the relevant number. Investigators had revealed that the plates were registered to uh, Donald Mackay in Doncaster, who had purchased the vehicle in 2018, and local officers were investigating now by way of a formal visit. No prints were revealed on the entrance gate, only smudge marks. This suggested gloves had been used to cut the log. But forensics pinpointed that cutters had been used. McLaughlin made a mental note of this as he suggested it was a premeditated decision. Definitely not a spur-of-the-moment thing. The fire forensics also confirmed that the accelerator had been lighter fuel. Again, a premeditated move, thought McLaughlin. So far, the search at the nearby areas had revealed nothing, but this was still ongoing. And under the darkness, but with searchlights, they had another hour or so to go before finishing up for the evening. Further CCTV had revealed that the vehicle had two front seat occupants but the details of who they were were bleary, and both appeared to be wearing baseball caps. Again, McLaughlin made a mental note. The vehicle, however, through analysis, represented a Mitsubishi Shogun. McLaughlin made a note to check the forensic team as to results of the VIN number. These results should have been in by now, he thought. The debrief overall signed off at 8.35pm and although he now had a pounding headache and was starving, he sat down to prep for the press release that was needed. Press debrief was aimed at 10pm. Chapter 22 Having witnessed through the two-way screen the effects of physical abuse to Carolina's body, Matthews and Quinn had spoken in private to the translator Angfor, And then advised that the police doctor would need to look at her. They needed to ensure she had been properly cared for. The chat between Carolina and Angfor had been a tearful one and despite initial protestations Carolina finally relented and allowed the police doctor to attend her with a police forensic officer. Nobody else was allowed in the room. Immediately tears started to form at the corner of Carolina's eyes. But the medical officer was polite and caring in her movements as she inspected Carolina's body and took the relevant photographs. But each time the camera shutter fired up, Carolina instinctively jumped. The medical officer took her time and did her best to make a difficult process as comforting as possible. Nothing surprised her as she went about her work. She witnessed and photographed the cigarette burns on Carolina's body, particularly her upper arms. The small knife wounds that were crisscrossed on her upper back but were light enough to portray a scar, but actually not deep enough to create a wound. Times when Drabkov and his friends had used her almost like a sketch pad to mark her with their knives. Then the medical officer photographed her ankles and wrists, areas where either the plastic or metal cuffs, dependent on the occasion, had kept her subdued. Eyes and teeth checked, hair, nails. Ears, armpits, vagina, anus. Each time the medical officer was careful in her approach. But each time she almost grimaced at the findings. Sometimes teeth clenched, she continued to shoot more film, as did the forensic officer. Also taking swabs and fluids, and recording their findings. Finally finished with examination, Carolina put on her paper underwear, a cotton vest, and zipped up the light blue jumpsuit she'd been given. Now feeling warm and somewhat safer, she was handed a warm mug of coffee while the medical officer left the examination room and went to talk to the two female officers. After what seemed a while, the three, ma- three women broke off the conversation, and the translator, alongside Quinn and Matthews, came back and updated Hank Thankful the translator spoke, in Lithuanian. Carolina, these officers appreciate your circumstances and want to assure you they're here to help. This is not your fault. Carolina nodded nervously. What happens now? she asked quizzically in Lithuanian. What do you want to happen? asked Ankfor. I don't know, replied Carolina, and then she burst into tears. Sobbing, as the translator held her close, Carolina whispered into Ankfor's right ear. Please help me. Keep me away from that sick bastard. Do not worry, Carolina, replied Angfor. You're safe here. The officers need to update the death sergeant with what is happening to you, and then they'll ensure you're taken to a safe room where you'll be looked after, ensure you're washed and fed and protected. Carolina slowly grabbed Angvor's hands and then held them tight, and then Lithuanian thanked her. Chapter 23 Quietly, and without any fuss, Matthews and Quinn walked down the corridor until they reached the front desk on the ground floor of the police HQ at Hinchinbrook. Carolina had slowly walked behind them with ankle and toe. All four reached the desk, and there stood, in front of them, Desk Sergeant Jim McBone. McBone read the notes and reached down, grabbed a biro pen, and signed the first sheet of paper inside the folder. "'Good to go, officer,' stated McBone. "'Matthews turned and carefully wrapped her arm in Carolina's arm "'and went to escort her to the unmarked police car "'that had been brought up from the underground car park "'and was now sat idling outside the front doors of the building. "'Carolina stood and stared, "'straight ahead at the wall to the left of McBone. "'Carefully, Susie began to move, but Carolina did not budge. "'What's up?' Quinn asked Angfor. Ankfor asked Carolina the same question and immediately she pointed at the wall, a finger straight pointing at the wall. There on the wall was a large message board with various missing persons posters pinned to them. Five posters, three men and two women. What's going on? asked Quinn. Again Ankfor spoke and Karolina nervously replied but as Susie let go of her arm, Carolina moved forward. Five paces forward and silently pointed at the last poster on the right. Quinn and Matthew stared at the poster. Immediately, Quinn felt a gut wrench. The last poster was Shani and Blawi, missing since October 2013. What about her? asked Quinn. Carolina nervously answered direct to Angfor in Lithuanian before Quinn had even finished the question. Oh my god. She see she met her. What? asked Quinn. Carolina stood staring at the poster, ignoring everyone, her eyes transfixed on the poster. She carefully put her finger on the face of the poster, almost apologetically. She then turned and stared straight at Quinn. Surprisingly, Carolina spoke in broken English. I saw her two weeks ago.